I am going to invite Trevor up. Uh, Trevor, for those of you that don't know, uh, Trevor has been in church as long as this church has existed. Uh, and his parents were the founding pastors of Lane Park Church. And, and before that, it was called uh, uh, Christian Upper Hut, um, Upper Hut Christian Fellowship. And it's been around for more than a year or two or three. And uh, Trevor's only 15, so it's been around 15 years. So Trevor's going to come up and give a word. And it's always fantastic. So how about we give Trevor a big clap? Yeah, I got one. I remember going to a um, a workshop. Uh, must be my young twenties on public speaking and communication. And one of the things that the the lecturer said that you should never do, never do, and that is when you commence a speech or a message or whatever, never, never apologise. And I haven't. I've never apologised when I've started something. I've apologised when I've finished, like, <laughs> sorry for keeping you for six hours or, or um, sorry for keeping you overnight, but um, I've never apologised until this morning. I got a terrible cold, you can probably tell. I'm fighting that and um, I trust that it'll, it'll see me through or I will see it through and we can get through the morning. If not... You're going to find yourself at the cafe quicker than normal. All right. Okay. Kids say some strange things to God, don't they? Listen to some of these. Here's some prayers to God or things that kids have said. Dear God, did you mean for giraffes to look like that or was it an accident? Norma. Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all the people in the whole world. There are only four people in our family and I can never do it. <laughs> it's from Nancy. Dear God, is it true my father won't get to heaven if he uses his golf words in the house? <laughs> Dear God, Thank you for the baby brother, but what I asked for was a puppy. <laughs> you can look it up. <laughs> Dear God, if you want to see, if, if you watch in, on church on Sunday, I'll show you my new shoes from Barbara. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel wouldn't have killed each other if they each had their own bedrooms. That, <laughs> that works with me and my brother. That was Larry. Dear God, how do you know? No, so dear God, if you made people perfect, how come Grandma's skin doesn't fit properly? <laughs> well, dear God, here's, here's the last one. Dear God, I don't get it. My Sunday school teacher says that you made the heavens and the earth, but my dad says everything is made in China. Well, dear God, how do you know you were God? Who told you? Who was your mum and dad? 
Kids have some unusual ideas about God, often based on kind of strange snippets they've heard from their parents or from others, older brothers and sisters. Sometimes the the ideas that kids have about God are whimsical and sometimes they're kind of a, a real simple faith in there as well. But we also create an image of God, all of us do. We fabricate God in our image. Now we know that we know that God created us in his image and that we are his image bearers in that in times of old when there was not a lot of easy transport but kings wanted to make sure they ruled well in their whole area of the land, they would establish statues out of timber or, or, or stone that would remind people of who their king was. And so they were, they were images or statues, and the same word is used in Genesis when God creates us as his image to represent him physically in areas of his realm where he doesn't have physical access. But we, we, we do a good job of creating an image of God as well, don't we? I mean, we can have, and sometimes the image that we create of God is maybe because of situations in the past. You know, we can, maybe we've, we've experienced stuff at church or we've experienced stuff with our families or people we've, we've, we've kind of grown up with and we create, we create an image of God and maybe we see God as an ogre looking over the edge of heaven and kind of, looking at what we're doing, that enjoying ourselves, and God's got, a, God's got a fist that might kind of be out to get us when we're having a good time. Well, maybe God is, God is one who we think is always wanting to, or we want him to do stuff for us. He's always handing out stuff. So we, we created God with lots of different hands. And he's always giving to us. Well, maybe God's got, maybe God's got, a lot of different hats, you know. There's several hats we can put on God, and and He can look differently because we're creating this image of God. When I grew up, I went to a church that that um, had a, a sign on the the stained glass at the front that said, "Thou God seest me." And as a, an eight year old kid, all I could see was a God who had heaps of eyes. You know, and that was my image of God. And so the people that could, I mean, God and my mother were the people who could, were the only ones who could see everything that I did, you know. <laughs> and that was my image of God. And so we all create an image of God. Some people, um, for many people, God kind of, they don't really know. And so God is almost blank for them. And there is this unknown about God. For some people, God is just, just a myth. And he doesn't really exist. And then they spend their whole life trying to explain to God that they don't believe him. You know? Some people try and do what God does. They try and create. They try and make the things or, or do what God does in terms of power, in terms of control, in terms of creation. It's a bit like the story of the the number of groups of scientists who had been working in a, in a laboratory to, to clone a human being. And they had 
been working for a long time with, um, with their combined sort of knowledge. And one day they'd, they'd kind of clicked it. and they, So they go to God and they say, God, we're going to challenge you. We actually believe that we can create a human just like you did. God said, okay. At that point, one of the scientists reached down and grabbed a piece of dirt. And God says, get your own dirt. <laughs> you got it? But we do. We create this image of God. In fact, I think if on, on a Sunday morning like this, if we were to walk around and ask you, what was your primary concept or image or perception of God, we would probably all have something a little bit different. What that would come up initially in our mind of who God was. Love. He's awesome. He's a God who's creator. He's holy. He's righteous. He's loving. And so we would create this image of God that for all of us could be a little bit different. Put them away so they don't distract you any longer. You can play with them later. That child's question is a good one. How do you know that you were God? (laughs) Who is or who was your mum and dad? In Exodus 3, there's a really interesting story. We all know it, I guess, but it's when Moses is tending his father-in-law's sheep and he comes across this burning bush, you know, this smoking shrub. And uh, the voice comes from the bush saying, Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And Moses takes off his shoes and the bush continues to speak and it's God. And he's saying, I've heard the the suffering and the the sorrow of my children, my people in Egypt, and I'm going to rescue them. And I'm sending you to rescue them. And I want you to go to Pharaoh, Moses, to rescue my people. And Moses said, whoa, hang on a minute. Don't you remember about me? I was kind of put in a basket by my mother who was a Jew and sent down the Nile and um, I was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and then raised as an Egyptian. But then one day I saw, I knew that my, my heritage really was a Jew and one day I saw a Jew and an Egyptian fighting and I stepped in and I killed the Egyptian. And God, you want me to go back there and talk to Pharaoh about releasing my people? And God says, I will be with you. And then he says, God says, I'm going to send you back to set my people free. And Moses said, what shall I tell them? And that's a pretty good question because the people had been in, well, they'd been in Egypt for over 400 years, probably in slavery for more than 200. And I guess in many ways they had, their faith in the God of their forefathers had been diminished because they're, they're in slavery and God had not come to the party. Their God of Abraham was no longer looking after them the way that he, they thought they would. So, so, so Moses said, what, what should I tell them? You're sending me, but who do I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. I am who I am. Interesting, because... The people really needed to know who was sending Moses. They needed to know who their God was. 
And what God said was, tell them, I am sent you. Now, I am is a phrase that we sometimes use at the beginning of a descriptive kind of um, sentence, like I am riding my bicycle, or in Moses' terms, he was, I am minding, minding the sheep, or I am doing this, or I'm doing that. But when it's just the two words that are used, I am, it is the ultimate statement of a number of realities. And thanks, Hunter. It's the ultimate statement, and God is saying this, I am. And the children of Israel would have known this, but he says, I am always existing. And he has. He's, there was nothing, nothing or no one before God existed. Nothing. He's always existed. Now, you try and get your kidneys around that. That's not easy, is it? It really isn't, because we, we can't understand God living outside the realms of time and space, and yet he does. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Not that he was there in the beginning, he was there before the beginning. Now, it's just, it's hard to grasp, but, but the I am of always existing. His existence is not dependent on anyone or anything. He's ever-present. He has been and he always will be. Secondly, he's self-sufficient. His ongoing presence is not contingent upon anything or anyone else. He doesn't need anyone or anyone. He's, he's, he's sufficient, self-sufficient. Having said that, though, he is not self-serving. Self-sufficient, but not self-serving. No one has appointed him as God. He doesn't need anyone to appoint him as God. Everything that we know in our world, in our universe, has a reference point. You have a reference point to your parents, to your kids. Your kids have a reference point to you. Your house has a reference point to the street that your house is located in, to the town that the street is in. Our world, our earth, our planet has a reference point to the sun. The moon has a reference point to the earth. God has no reference point. He is who he is, the I am. He's self-sufficient. He's unchangeable. Malachi 3 says, I am the God who does not change. His promises are constant. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been just. His justness has not changed. It hasn't shifted. His love doesn't change. His love for this planet, for this earth, for the, for the people that he has created, for every man and woman on this planet who has lived in the past and who will live in the future, his love does not change. His love for me does not change, even when I leave my clothes on the floor. His love is constant. Albert Einstein said that the most significant question that mankind can ask of its, itself, and this question has been echoed by philosophers since, is this question, is the universe a friendly place? Is the universe a friendly place? And when we consider the implications of a question like that, with all the the unknowns of our world with climate, with the environment, with 
interracial stuff with what could be out there with what our relationships are like with each other, with interglobal, international and interglobal stuff, what is happening, and even stuff in our own locality. Either our world is something that we, our universe is something that is against us and we fight it, or our universe is a friendly place. And I think, and Jesus answers that question so well at this, when he says to us how to pray. He says, our Father who lives in heaven. But the centre of the universe is a loving father. God is constant. He's unchangeable. His energy and his power is inexhaustible. Isaiah 40 says he does not faint or grow weary. He has the power to do what he wants to do, what he wills to do. We live in a world where we're forever charging batteries. We're putting fuel on the car. Well, one day it won't be fuel, it'll be charging the car as well. But we live in a world where everything runs out, where there's an exhaust, everything we, we do relating to power is exhausted, right? Dino before referred to crossing uh, the power of God and the miracle of crossing the Red Sea and rolling back the waves so that the people could cross safely. That act did not exhaust God's power. Really, it was a pattern, just a pattern, for all his miracles that he could do later on forever and ever. His power, his energy is inexhaustible. May I say, his power and his energy is here for us this morning. He's a God who does not change. He's a God who always loves, who always just. And his power and his energy, his miraculous work is right here to change our lives into the way that he wants us to be. So for the people of Israel, this was a critical time. Hundreds of years in slavery, God seemed distant to them and uh, they, needed to know, they needed to know his name. And so he says, I am. Tell them, I am sent you. Knowing his name does a number of things. You might want to take these down. I found these really interesting. Knowing his name enlarges our sense of his greatness. It deepens our love and admiration. Knowing his name inspires us to worship. Knowing his name strengthens our faith. But knowing his name enlarges our sense of his greatness, deepens our love and admiration, inspires us to worship, and strengthens our faith. Those who know your name, it says in Psalm 9, verse 10, those who know your name put their trust in you. Not those who just know about you, but those who have spent long enough to know who you really are, who understand your greatness, who understand your self-sufficiency and the fact you don't change, and yet the God who, who, whose miraculous power is inexhaustible. Those who know your name put their trust in you. In fact, they know it's not just about believing in God. It's about saying, God, whatever happens in my life, I know that you're the God who is the great I am, who loves me, who never changes, whose miraculous power is there for your disposal but will look after me. And I put my trust in you. Those who know my, your name 
put their trust in you. So let us go back to that song we sang just a few minutes ago. The words of which we say what God claims to be. God claims to be a miracle worker, a way maker, a promise keeper in the light and the darkness. You know, the reference to God as a way maker comes from a passage in Isaiah 43. Can we have that on, Hunter, please? In Isaiah, the, the kind of the, the context of this, of this passage, the context is that these people, the people of Israel, again in bondage and slavery, they're in Babylon this time, and they are crying for release. And God kind of takes them back in their memory through what has happened some time ago. And it's, a, it's the reference to the Red Sea, and he says, This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses, the army and the reinforcements together, and they lay there never to be seen again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Next one. Forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Leave that one on if you can, Hunter. So what, Isaiah, what, what the story is saying in Isaiah is that, hey, just as God did it before the Red Sea, pulling back the waters and then making a path through the wilderness, I'm going to do it now. It's a historical reference, and this is basically saying that God, God's power is not exhausted at the Red Sea. He's going to do it again. You know, for most of us, the word waymaker creates a picture of, I don't know about you, but of an adventurer going through a jungle with a machete, cutting down all the bush and making a way. Isn't that kind of, that's the kind of the thought that comes to mind when we use the phrase waymaker. And God is like that. He makes a way, as he has done for the children of Israel. He does make a way. He does that when, when there are times when we need a miraculous hand of God at work in our lives, he can make a way. An unclimbable mountain or a desert that is arid and barren, God makes a way. God's healing, his provision, his protection, he gives us a path to wholeness, to safety and security. And most of us have seen the healing hand of God, the miraculous work of God in our lives, haven't we? Actually, how about that? How about we just have a couple of people very, very shortly, uh, very briefly, just share something where it was without doubt the intervention of God and that it couldn't have had it happen naturally and I don't want a story about, about going around the block 26 times and all of a sudden a park arrives um, or finding a pair of socks that you've lost six years ago. Uh, but, but, but something that God, where God has stepped in 
and done something in your life or in a family member's life that was so obviously a work that only the supernatural could do. Someone, anybody just... Yeah, Jen. Cool. Well, that's a good one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, isn't it? See, God does the miraculous. He steps into our lives and does stuff, brings the heaven down where we can experience the miraculous hand of his work in our lives. I remember when I was a kid, I used to get asthma real bad. My, I had to go down to the hospital many times for going ventil- ventilator and that sort of stuff. And there were times when mum used to be fearful of my life, you know. And I remember when I was, it must have been about 15, I was really bad one night, early in the morning about three o'clock and you know, I was sitting up in bed, just couldn't get my breath and mum was beside herself about to drop me down to the hospital and, all of a, and they, they, they rang a pastor and he came to pray for me and I haven't had an attack of asthma since. You know, God, God just steps in so many times. However, I do have to say that God... Being a waymaker does not only reflect his ability to remove barriers, not only his ability to roll back the mountains or roll back the sea, but there are times when some of those things are not moved and some of those barriers remain, and yet what do we treat God in terms of his being a waymaker? See, we know, in reality, we know that the Cancer does not always dissipate. In reality, we know that something we pray our hearts for may not actually occur, may not go away. Is God still a waymaker? Or perhaps we're praying for a relationship to be healed and for God to make a way there, but it doesn't. Or maybe we've got a, we do have a sore back, and we've had over the years had more hands laid on us than a piano, but. But the pain, the pain can still remain. Is God still a waymaker? Or perhaps our kids don't live out the way that we want them to live out. Or maybe we've budgeted right, we've done things well financially, we've looked after our, our, our monetary concerns, we've been very diligent. But in one week, the, the car needs major repairs and the hot water cylinder fails. And then we lose our job and we find ourselves in a financial hole. Is God still a waymaker? And, you know, when we pray for stuff to happen and it doesn't happen, does God still make a way? Now, there's a key to that in the middle of this passage. Can we go back to that, please, Hunter? Sorry. I put Hunter to sleep. No, sorry. Okay. Uh, Next one. Good. Right, verse 18. The the key between the the passage where it's talking about God parting the waters and then making a way through the wilderness is this 18 and 19. It says, forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? What God is saying here is that the the making of a way is not just what we think it is in terms of the the prayer that we've prayed, but the making of a way is also making from old to new. All right? So, So he's saying forget the former things. 
Don't dwell in the past. In other words, don't, don't live there. That's not the place where you're supposed to be residing. You're not supposed to live in the past. I'm doing something new. Can't you perceive it? In other words, don't you understand it? Can't you get hold of it? I'm doing something new. Grab hold of it. And what I'm suggesting this morning is that even though we see the miraculous hand of work of God in our lives, we also see a God at work in our lives as he makes the way from the old to the new. Sometimes we'll, we'll face a mountain or a, a, a raging sea or a, or a desert that's very, very arid and, and, and there is no way around the desert. We walk through the desert. And God makes a way through the place that is arid and barren, makes a way so that we know we're going from old to new. There's a verse in, in Psalm 84 that refers to the travelling pilgrim, the travelling Christian, Jesus follower, if you like. And it says, they, as they walk through the valley of Bekar, which is an arid, barren place, they will make it a place of springs. Not they will find a place of springs, but in their journey of walking through this barren, arid place, they will f- make it, make the arid place a place of springs. Now the principle on, this is what I like about the principle when you look at this in, in biblical history, is that whenever you found a spring or a well, you left it for someone else. You noted it, you highlighted it, you put stones around it, you made a mark so that the spring that you found actually became a spring for someone else as well. And how much of that do we see in our lives when we're walking through an arid or a barren place and somehow God makes a way for us and we find the spring of life and then because we've found it, we don't hold it to ourselves. We know that the nourishment that comes and feeds us and gives us life and vitality can also bring life and give nourishment to those who follow and those who we talk to and spend life with. We don't like deserts. <laughs> the deserts are uncomfortable places. And that's the message of the world that we live in. I mean, our culture does not like living in difficult times, difficult places. Our culture sees the easy life and comfort as idols to be valued, right? Our culture sees, if you like, our culture sees comfort as a God to be pursued, right? And so when comfort is at risk, we want to remove it. We want to remove the suffering that affects our comfort. We want to resolve the suffering so that we live in comfort. That's the way that our culture works. But the Bible is different. The Bible says treat suffering as a providence from God. Why? Because it not only refines us as gold, and that's a an interesting process in itself, and gold as the metal and the other substances that are kind of in the in the whatever is dragged out of the earth is heated to something like twelve hundred degrees, and then all the impurities come to the surface and they're washed off and broken off, and that pure gold is left. And so, suffering, the Bible teaches us, is like that. 
It, it purifies us. But it also is a, is a means by where God makes a way from the old to the new. Now, I probably talk about Jared's death more now than I would have if he was still alive, you know. But that's the way it is. Why is that? Because it's the most significant life-shaping event that's occurred in my life. Why is that? Well, how is that? Because in that period of pain and since then, God has become my waymaker. I've found God to be a waymaker in spite of the fact that Viv and I held each other and prayed for a particular outcome of a prayer as we prayed, as we stood in that, that hospital room, praying that all would be well. In spite of all that, in spite of that prayer not being answered, God has become my waymaker. He's taken me from the old to the new. He's increased my life knowledge of his name. I know I know the reality of who he is in a far greater way now than I would have before. I just know that. I have a deeper understanding of who he is. A deep sense of joy that only comes when you've suffered intense pain. And I have an insight into his eternal story. And I know how the roots of my life now are shaped by the fact of what is in the future. There's a Psalm 119, verse 105, is a, a verse that many of us know. It says, his, lamp, his word is lamp. In other words, his word, his principles, his truth, his life-changing power in our lives, his word is a lamp unto my feet, but a light unto my path. The word lamp and light are two different words in the Hebrew. The lamp is a word like the, like the candle. What I can see, just what I need to see just for my next step, the light to my path is what happens in the real future. Not, I mean, we don't, you and I don't know what happens next month and next year and 10 years' time. We know that. But we do know what happens in eternity, the light to my path. And I live in my life today, and I trust that you will as well, you can as well, Live in the light of today, the lamp of today, where my feet are walking right now, today, tomorrow, the next day, because I see the light of the future. Right? I live, what's that saying? We live with the, um, we live with the end in mind. <laughs> that is so true. Or we live with the end in sight, you know, of what is ahead. And knowing that that does not take me out of reality of where I am now, but it, but it shapes me for where I am now, my life today, and roots me in the, in the making a meaning and a destiny of where I am right now in relation to where I will be in the future. With me on that? So no matter what your life throws at you, perhaps it's the rough sea, perhaps it's the we have the band back up, actually. Be good. No matter what life throws at you, the rough sea, the unclimbable mountain, the desert that's barren, God can be your way maker. God is your way maker. That's who he is. 
not what he says he can do, it's, it's who he is. It's tied up in the I am. He is who he is. He can perform the miraculous. And at times when what you think is the miraculous does not occur, God is still doing the miraculous. Because what were the words that we sang before, that in the song, even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't sense it, even when I don't think you are, you are still working. God is always making a way. Why? Because that's who he is. And he is here. He is here today, turning lives around. We've seen that. He is the way maker. Whether you have the miraculous or whether the miraculous is not something physical that we can feel or do or share, but it's something that happens in our lives that we know that we've moved from old unto new. And God can do that and do something in your life that radically changes you. When you understand the I am, you know him, you know his name, and you put your trust in him. It's not just about the difficulties in life either. Not just about the unclimbable mountains or the big seas that we're facing. It's about where you are right now without maybe any problems at all. Maybe life is just running so smoothly. But the trap or the potential trap of that is that we stay where we are. And we get comfortable where we are. But that's not what God wants. God is a moving on God. If you stay where you are, you know, you get old. <laughs> and when you get old, it's harder to move. And all the oldest, all the above 60s said amen to that. And when you get old, the, the, more you, the longer you stay in one position, the older that position gets and your mind sight and everything about your faith level and everything you're doing is, is in that space. And God is a moving God and wants to move on. And, and it's a time to say, God, life is good. But God, what have you got for me over here? I need to work from old to new. Because here, I could stay here for a long time, it becomes a rut. And really, a rut is just a coffin with the ends knocked out. I could stay there. It took a while, didn't it? But God wants to move you on to the new. So no matter what your life is like, you're facing the difficulties and the barrenness. Or life is a breeze. God is here to move you on and to make a way for you to experience the new. Don't live there. Move over here. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your goodness to us. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that you are the great I am. You're the God who's always been there, who always will be. You're the God who's unchangeable the God who has never let us down, the God who is a miracle worker, a way maker. And Lord, I pray that today as we just explore that a little bit, that you'll speak to people's hearts and Lord, that they would indeed allow you to make a way for them. Don't hold you back, but Lord, allow the way to be made so that they can work and move from the old to the new. To see things happen in their lives that can only occur when the miraculous God is at work one way or another doing something that only He can do. 
bless you in Jesus' name. Thank you for this morning. May your hand be upon us. Continue to work in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. you to do is if um, can you as we sing this song together just make a declaration to God I'm not asking you to come forward but I'm just saying hey God I need you to make a way I need you to make a way I know the life it's been barren but I know there's a spring there that I can make in this barrenness and I want to share it with others well God I'm in a dry place but I'm in a place where, where everything's okay but I want you to take me to a new place where I can be used by you and understand your purpose and your destiny for my life. As we stand and sing, you just offer that up to God as we do that together. Amen. <laughs>